All right, I want to go ahead and start with a question for you to talk about with some people around you. Um, what was the gospel, uh, how was the gospel presented to you when you were growing up? So, um, what kinds of things do you remember the gospel being um, described or presented to you? How, how was it presented to you growing up? What was it about? And ready, go. Okay, let me, uh, let me jump back in here, and we will come back to this question about halfway through, hopefully. So I'm going to set a timer because I need to stay on schedule here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. So tonight, we are talking about the church. We're going to talk about the church. We're going to spend the majority of our time in Acts. And here's how we're breaking it up. Basically, I'm talking through the first 12 chapters of Acts. And then Ryan is talking through chapter 13 through the end of, the, of Acts. But really, he's teaching chapter 13 all the way through the end of the New Testament. So what he's going to do is, is walk through Paul's missionary journeys. As, and as Paul goes out to... Churches like Galatia, he's going to talk about the book of Galatians. Or when he, when he goes to Corinth, or when he goes to Thessalonica, or when he goes to, he's going to describe what those books are about. Oh, yes, you may need some sheets. Grab those, pass them. Everybody got? Okay, we're good. So that, that's, that's the way we're going to go about tonight, is these two parts. My part is first 12 books. His part is t- using Paul's journeys to teach through the rest of the, of the New Testament and to talk through the epistles. So it'll be a lot of information. If you want, uh, when you're taking notes, on, especially on his part, to you know, write down little things he says about this book and that book and this book, and um, that'll help you kind of follow along. Um, but in my part, <clears throat> my, my two objectives are this. One, to just walk through the first 12 books and, and give a really a brief um, outline of what happens from Jesus ascending to, um, to Peter being miracu- miraculously released in chapter 12. Um, and just kind of walking through that and pausing a couple times to, to hit a couple, few, couple key things that I think are important to hit. And then, and then the second half, I want to just, I want to talk, uh, we're, we're going to look at five of the sermons, the five sermons in the first 12 books. And... Um, and here's a question we're asking, is how was the gospel presented in those sermons? So these are, these are legitimate messages that Peter or Stephen, Peter has four of them, Stephen has one, um, but that, that they give, they proclaim Jesus, they proclaim the gospel, and so we're going to see what did they talk about, what kinds of things did they hit, and how was it presented? In a sense, what did the original hearers hear when they heard the gospel? And then we're going to try to compare it to what we heard um, growing up. So, that is the goal. Let me, let me pray, and we'll, we'll jump in. God, I do thank you for tonight. I pray that um, as we open your word, as we, as we read the, the, the story of the church and your spirit birthing the church, and your spirit um, revealing 
Jesus and empowering his followers to be witnesses for him. Um, I just I thank you that we get to 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 have this account, and I, I pray that God we would we would be inspired to um, to want to live for you and want to be witnesses um, in the same way that we see your church being witnesses in Acts. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, turn to Acts one eight. Acts 1.8, um, I, I don't know if Luke is doing this on purpose, um, but he's clearly obviously repeating what Jesus said, but he's also, this, this, he's giving us somewhat of an outline of what the book of Acts really does, where the gospel goes in the book of Acts. And so, <clears throat> somebody, somebody read that, verse 8. Um, uh, flip a, yeah. Okay, so a couple things happen. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Um, you're, the title of, your, of the book probably on that page probably says Acts of the Apostles. I think it's probably best titled Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit moving through His followers that, that again, are there to, that's why I said last week, He is the divine pointer or revealer and the divine empower to carry out the things that God has asked his um, church to do. So, you see the Holy Spirit coming. He says, the Holy Spirit will come, and you'll be my witnesses. And this is where he gives somewhat of an outline. I did this earlier. That is an E. Jerusalem and Judea. He's essentially kind of lumping those together. Samaria. And end of the earth. So we, we know um, Jerusalem and Judea is 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7. Samaria is essentially chapter 8. Um, the ends of the earth really, you could say, begins in chapter 9, but chapters 9 through 12 is really this kind of introduction. It's this brief, it's, it's really the linchpin, it's, it's kind of the hinge to which the gospel goes from just to, for Jews to the whole world. And so chapters 9, 10, 9, 10, 11, and 12 really kind of introduce and set up chapter 13. So chapter 13 through 28 is, is this ends of the earth thing that's happening. Um, so th- this is a, a somewhat of a brief or a basic outline to, to how to view what's, what's going to happen and what Luke is describing. Luke, obviously the, the author of the Gospel, Luke um, is writing to the same person, Theophilus. And so he says, he starts in Luke and he starts in Acts, these two letters. It's really, a, it, some people call it Luke-Acts, as these, these, these two letters that, that flow really well together, that one picks up from where the other one left off. But Luke is writing to Theophilus, telling the story of Jesus and Luke, and then telling the story of his church in Acts, and this is a basic outline he uses um, that we'll see. Now, when the, when, when the disciples heard Jesus say, you'll be my witnesses in Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, what they heard, which we know later, is you'll be my witnesses to Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Because in their mind, 
Jews are the only ones that were followers of Jesus. And Jews are the only ones that um, inherit this Abrahamic promise and covenant that Jesus fulfills. And so this, this, this is for Jews. And then we'll see a little bit later that they are quite shocked and surprised that it's not just for Jews, it's for everyone. Um, so let's walk through what happens. And like I said, we're going to walk pretty quickly. Um, but we see in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends. They replace Judas with Matthias. Um, they felt the need to fulfill this, this, this 12 as being a very significant number in the life of Israel. A lot of connections there to um, the tribes, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles that are being sent out. Um, so definitely God is establishing something new here. And in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches this sermon. And in this sermon, um, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more later, um, we'll, we'll talk more in detail about that sermon later, but after the sermon, uh, it says that, that they are cut to the heart and they want to know what they need to do. He tells them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the Holy Spirit, and about 3,000 were added um, that day. So this happened on Pentecost. Now Pentecost, we come to see Pentecost as the day the Holy Spirit came, um, and, and we get the word Pentecostal, but literally the word is, a, it, was a, it was a celebration, it was a holiday, 50 days after um, the Passover. Penta, 50 days after, and so there was this celebration of God's faithfulness to provide for His people, and it was a time in which Jews were coming back to Jerusalem, um, sojourners, journeyers, to, uh, to celebrate this, this Pentecost day, um, and this is when God chooses to send His Spirit. So, then chapters 2, the end of 2 especially through 5, you see the church, the first church, um, being born and taking its first few, few steps or crawls, if you will. And you see several things happening. You see, specifically at the end of chapter 2, you see them devoting themselves to uh, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Um, you see them meeting, meeting together in the temple, meeting in homes, breaking bread. You see them um, taking care of each other. Uh, you see them filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking with boldness, the apostles and in the, in the church. Um, you can see all about that in chapter 4, says, mentions it several times. I love verse 31 in chapter 4. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. And that's a really kind of a, that's a um, summary statement of what's been taking place. And it transitions to the next section, which talks about how they were taking care of each other, the church. None of them had need. They were coming bringing their gifts, their, their prop, selling their property and bringing the gifts to, to, to meet the needs of the body. This is huge. I mean, huge to talk about how, how, how we as, as the church should be caring for each other. Um, huge. Uh, Barnabas is introduced there as a guy who was rich and wealthy and sold it and came and brought it and inherited um, a... A difficult life that, that bore amazing fruit in eternity. Um, so Barnabas is introduced at the very end of chapter 4 in, in direct contrast to the next couple that's introduced at the beginning of chapter 5, which is who? 
Ananias and Sapphira, where, where Barnabas was generous and giving, Ananias and Sapphira were um, deceptive and um, probably manipulative or um, at best, you know, just um, creating conflict and controversy. Um, and so God, you, you, see the, you see the first, you see this, this, this God protecting his church from corruption with Ananias and Sapphira. And, and let, me, let me say this just briefly about God's judgment to them. Um, there's a guy named Jim Anderson, some of you may know, in, in, on Sunday morning. Every, every, time, every time one of us teaches, Jim will come up and graciously say thank you and then give us lots of things that we could have done better in a very gracious way. Uh, but it's always like, man, Jim, why aren't you teaching this class? Um, but, it's, but he's always very helpful to help me see things that, that I probably wouldn't have been able to see. But he, and he always writes them down and gives them to us, notes. Like, hey, I thought this was really good what you pointed out. This is also what I think about this. And he's, he's a very incredibly gracious man. But he's, he wrote this. I thought this was good. He said, when Ananias and Sapphira experienced the judgment of God, judgment is moved to a very personal level. He says, no longer is judgment Israel and Assyria and Babylon and Rome. Judgment is an individual judgment in the account of Ananias and Sapphira. He says, yet, just as the gospel at some point becomes personal, um, God's judgment becomes personal. And the stain is addressed, he says. The, goal, the gold is refined. The purpose of God is, is made known. And the judgment, and through the judgment comes righteousness and peace and um, and, and justice is established and reigns. And he said, with trembling hearts, Christians, um, Christians hopefully desire God's judgment. And so he was pointing out how judgment, and we talked about this, how judgment, especially in this particular case, is seen as like, whoa, that's out, out of left field. Um, but if you trace back through that God's judgment over his people, over nations, was always for refinement, was always for to call back to repentance, was always for... Right? And it was always holistic, and then it became personal in the same way that, that, that Christ's salvation, in some sense, becomes um, individual and personal, although it's certainly collective as well, specifically collective. Um, but what I liked about this was the reminder that, um, that we, need to, we need to desire God's judgment, even on us. We need to, we, we don't need, there's nothing that God could say to us and speak to us that wouldn't be good for us. And um, so this was, this was a helpful reminder uh, to me. You know, God is establishing His temple, the, the church, the place in which the Holy Spirit would dwell in physically on earth where His body would go out. And He was very careful to pr- pr- protect his, this newborn child um, from corruption. So, that's chapter 5. In, um, chapter 6, we have the first church complaint and the introduction of Stephen and Philip, who become key players in the next couple chapters. Um, chapter 7 is um, where is, we have the first church martyr. This is Stephen. Um, and we have, have a long sermon in chapter 7, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. He's, of course, martyred. Um, chapter 8, turn, to, turn there, by the way. Beginning of chapter 8. Um, Paul is introduced, or, or sorry, Saul is introduced as being this great church persecutor who's going after the Christians to imprison, and we know later, um, you know, kill some, and so he is on the move, the church is being persecuted, and this great line, chapter 8, verse 4, 
It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And now we could talk a lot about church today and how church today, those who spread the word are professionals, those who go to seminary, those who are paid. And, and so I've heard many times in my 15, 16 years of ministry, hey, pastor, I just know if I bring him to church, I know you'll tell the gospel, you'll, you'll point him to Jesus. You know, I just got to get him here and let you do the work. And, and so I get some of that. You know, I've probably been guilty of similar thinking. Um, but it seems like when the church scattered, like wherever they went, the gospel went with them. And the gospel was proclaimed in word and deed. And, and so a lot can be, there's a lot of implications to this. That, that if, you, if you think back to a sermon that, that Jim preached several weeks ago um, in this, this um, pra- church practice series on preaching, and we're all called to be witnesses. We're all called to preach. We're all called to speak of, of God's glory and, and proclaim His, His truth and proclaim the gospel. Um, this is a key verse to help us remember. This is, this is what we've always been. We've always, wherever we go, we're supposed to take, take God's good news with us and proclaim it in word and deed. So that's church eight. You see church persecution. You see the gospel going out to Samaria by way of Philip. Um, you see an Ethiopian eunuch. You see, so you see, starting to see glimpses of this is getting bigger and bigger. It's not just for Jews. It's for half-Jews, which would be Samaria, long history in Samaria. Jews saw that as a stench, saw Samaria as a stench because of lots of things, because of um, northern, northern Israel doing wicked things there in Samaria, um, setting up camp. You see other nations like Assyria, bringing in their own people to populate and mix and mingle with the Jews to basically destroy their culture from within. Um, and so Samaria has this long history that the Jews are ashamed of. And, and so the gospel goes there. And then the gospel goes to an Ethiopian eunuch who comes from far and then, and then enters, enters um, Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. And then Peter's, um, Peter's vision and ultimately uh, encounter with Gentiles who receive the gospel and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes on Gentiles and he is shocked. I mean, he has to receive a vision from God. He has to be witness to it in order to go, okay, I guess, I guess the gospel, I guess this isn't just for Jews, this is for, for everyone. Enough to where he comes back in chapter 11 he has to go back to the church to explain to the church Hey guys, this is what I just saw. They're like, "Are you sure?" I'm like, "Yeah, this is what I just witnessed." And, and so this was, this was mind-boggling to them, how this could be. Which enters into, gives you a little prequel to what happens in chapter 15, um, the first church council, where they have to meet and go. Um, so, Gentiles are accepting Jesus and having the Holy Spirit. Should they? Should we start making them do use our our like our food customs and our honor our, our um, holidays and all these ritualistic things because don't they have to be Jewish in order to follow Jesus? So this is the thing, this, this is what they're wrestling with in the church. Um, and, and Ryan will talk about that when he talks about Galatians. So, so chapters 9 and chapter 10 
I think, are huge chapters for us to see that this great church persecutor and then becomes the greatest church missionary and then the, the pillar of the church is there to witness the gospel being proclaimed to Gentiles, which you and I are now recipients of. And, and so this huge swing, this change happens, and all of a sudden, now the gospel can go out to the ends of the earth. Um, chapter 12, we have the first apostle martyred. That's James, the, the uh, disciple, not, not the brother of Jesus. Um, see him martyred, and then Peter gets arrested and miraculously escapes. And then basically... At the end of chapter 12, Peter disappears until a brief stint in chapter 15. Other than that, the rest of Acts is about, is about Paul and his journeys and his carrying the gospel out to the rest of the world, which ultimately goes from here to, to here. So, and that will, that's what we'll get into in a little bit with, with Ryan. Um, so, let, let's, uh, any, any thoughts or questions on that, real quick? Any questions on the first 12 chapters? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Which with, there's a lot of implications to where we're heading in our nation. You know, um, to when when all of a sudden the culture we live in is not for Jesus and the things that He believes or stands for. Um, it gives us unique opportunity to to really be a light in in a dark world. And, and so as much as we may not like it, 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 it really is going to present unique opportunities. So, so there's a lot to be learned from that. There's also you could study Constantine. When all of a sudden Constantine decides that Rome's a Christian nation, people are like, oh, oh, I don't really have to share the gospel with my neighbor because we're all Christians now. Great. Let's just go about life. And so that didn't go well for the church. The church, <laughs> lots of bad things happen when, when you become stagnant and Eh, we're all Christians, so I guess we'll just let's just focus on sports. Um, so, good observation. Um, last ten minutes or so, maybe maybe twelve or fifteen. Um, the gospel is presented several times. Um, we have accounts, we have sermons of of how they were um, communicating the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, and so. So let me throw it back out to you. What, what were some things that you were taught growing up? Like um, the gospel is about what? Jesus was about what? Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and if you do not accept him, you're going to hell. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Died on the cross for our sins. Um, you accept him, you go to heaven. And I, and for a little kid, I know it's complicated, but those are very clear things. Okay, I don't want to go to hell. And, yeah, I messed up, so I'll take it. I'll take Jesus. Um, what else? Whenever you accept Jesus, you're going to have your best life. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Your best life now. Um, Jesus, with Jesus comes this great life. And so 
Um, the gospel is about us um, having a better life, living a better life. Anyone, anyone maybe raised in a church where um, the gospel was, it, basically it's a New Testament thing. Like the, the Old Testament just helped us get to here, so we don't really talk about it much or we don't really read it because um, we're New Testament Christians. And so the gospel is it literally started when Jesus was born. Um, so all that stuff just helps us give us a little context to Jesus being born, but then from that point on it's really about Him. Um, I know that that's, that was, uh, I, I never really, the, the gospel was never presented in a way that included the history of Israel and the promises of Abraham and the, and the, 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 um, the conclusion of all that from before. Um, another one is, is just this personal relationship thing. Um, you know, and so in, in a lot of sense, obviously all these things are true with the exception of the we don't need the Old Testament thing, but Jesus did die in a place in our place for our sins. He, we do get to spend eternity with Him. We do get to have a, a personal relationship with Him. Um, our life, in terms of our ability to glorify God and, and our living rightly with Him, changes drastically when we become a Christian. And so, in that sense, yeah, we do live a better life. Doesn't mean it's going to be easier, or doesn't mean there's not going to be any pain or any discomfort, um, but, but all those things can be true. So now let's look at some of these sermons and see how the gospel was presented and what kinds of things they talked about. Acts chapter 2, 14 through 39, this is Peter's sermon, this is, this is exhibit number one. We're not going to read it all. Um, you can go back and read through it. But Peter stands up. People are wondering what's happening. He's explaining to them. He mentions two basic sections of Scripture. Joel chapter 2, which I, I, I alluded to last week when we talked about the Holy Spirit. So Joel 2 is this reference to this new thing that's happening when God's Spirit comes. And so he's just saying, hey, this is now. Like Joel 2 is happening now. Something new is taking place. And so he's, he's up there to explain the promised Holy Spirit. The second, the second uh, thing he basically goes after, talks about, is that Jesus is the Messiah. So the Holy Spirit has, has come, just like it was promised in Joel, and Jesus is the Messiah. He is King. And here's how he does that. He talks about how God did signs and wonders through him, um, how Jesus was delivered up by the plan and foreknowledge of God, that's verse 23, that Jesus is a descendant of David. That's verses 30 through 32. That's when he quotes Psalms. No. Well, he, he, of course, he quotes Psalms, but then he explicitly mentions it in 30 through 32. And then, and then lastly, verses 33 through 36, he says, Jesus is king. And in that verse, 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know that for certain that God has made him this Jesus that I just got done talking about, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this was the message. Um, oh, one of the things we didn't mention early on that, we, that is often associated with the gospel is God's love for you. And, and so far, Peter hasn't mentioned that. Um, it's just interesting to note. 
Uh, not that it's not true. It's just it's just not what he it's not what he chooses to mention. And from this they go, with our cut to the heart, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins. And so um, this, is, this is a part of the, the, this is the gospel that was presented. Sermon 2, Acts 3, starting at verse 12. Peter stands up. Peter has just healed a lame beggar. And the people are amazed, and so he stands up to say, hey, um, by the way, that was Jesus that did that. And so we hear another sermon and a gospel proclamation. Um, He says in verse 13 that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. So he connects, he instantly starts by, to talk about Jesus, he starts with Abraham. And this same God, the God of our fathers, glorified Jesus. So pay attention. Um, He says, you denied God. He calls Jesus the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Author of Life. Look at uh, verse 15. And you killed the Author of Life. Now this twice he said, you crucified Jesus, you killed the Author of Life, you murdered. So there is this language that he's speaking challenging, tough truth to them. Um, God foretold that Christ would suffer. That's verse 18. So he talks about how, he, how the prophets point to the fact that Jesus would suffer. That's as, you know, he's referring to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. Um, in verse 19 he says, Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Similar language to the repent, so that for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and then verses 25 through 26, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Essentially, he's he's again drawing back to the promise that God gave Abraham to um, to bless all the families of the earth through him, through his seed, which is Jesus. Again, these are the kinds of things that often aren't in our um, presentation of the gospel. We, we don't bring up Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We, we don't talk about um, Jesus being God. We don't. We don't um, maybe we do, but we often don't. We, repent such an awkward word to say to somebody. Um, but so far, it's been proclaimed twice in this presentation. Uh, let's keep going. Sermon 3, Acts 4, 8 through 12. We can read this one. <clears throat> it's, it's short. Let me read it. Then Peter, chapter 4, 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to, said to them, Rulers of the people of, and the elders, if we are being examined today, considering a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this, man's has, by, by what means this man has been healed, and let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, there it is again, and whom God raised from the dead. This is what you did and this is what God did. By him, this man is standing before you well. So he's giving testimony, he's giving glory to Jesus. Jesus did this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the, the builders, 
which has become the cornerstone. And there is and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Um, so arrested, they're arrested for for healing this man. And before the rulers and elders, he says that Jesus the Christ, whom you crucified, healed this man. Uh, he's the cornerstone of the promises of God, and you rejected him. This is a common theme. Now. It's a, uh, probably a different audience than maybe your friends at work. Um, they're, not relig- they're not Jewish elders and, and <laughs> rulers and teachers of the law um, that literally did reject and crucify Jesus. But still, it's interesting. Salvation is found in no one else. A very exclusive language that's being used here. Acts, there's this, the fourth one, the next one. Acts 7 is very long. We're not going to read through that. Um, this is Stephen's speech before the rulers and the elders. He is basically walking through uh, the history of Israel, highlighting shameful moments like the calf incident. Hey guys, you remember the calf incident? I mean, it's like, oh, yeah. Um, he, he's, telling, he's telling the story, but, but telling it in a way to remind the people of their hard-heartedness, of their rebellion. And how they rejected God on a regular basis. All to get to the end, which is a... His dominant thought is... <laughs> well, it got him killed. Um, it, was, it was interesting. He likens... I, I want to highlight something in, in verses 35, 37, and 39. He, he, he highlights how Jesus is similar to Moses. And he says, Moses was a, a ruler and a redeemer... Jesus is like that. He says in 37, God, that God promised Moses that God will raise up for you a prophet like me. He says this through Moses. So he's referring to Jesus. And then, and then this is the point in verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey Moses just like they refused to obey Jesus. Um, and then all, all to get to the, the summary in verses 51 through 53 when he calls them stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, resisting the Holy Spirit, um, persecuting the prophets, um, killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. This is again, third time he's reminded them of what they've done and have received the law, but did not keep it. Um, that got him killed. So, Interesting. And then the last one, Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 43. This is the, the first sermon preached to a Gentile group. And so this, this would be maybe the most um, similar audience that we would have if we were going to talk to our friends or talk about Jesus. Um, is... He's, he's, I won't read it all the way through, but basically he points out how God first proclaimed this, this gospel to, to Israel. So he's telling Gentiles, listen, God chose Israel and he spoke to Israel um, and proclaimed Jesus as Lord first to them. And he says that God anointed Jesus with, with the Holy Spirit and with power. So he just informing them of 
of um, Jesus's divinity. He says, he points to himself, <clears throat> and the Apostle says, we are just witnesses of his life and his death and his resurrection. This is, we, we witness his life, this is how it's changed us. Um, he says, God has appointed Jesus judge of the living and the dead. Um, so far, no mention of God's love for them, but that God has appointed him as judge of, of everyone, living and dead. And then he says, all who believe, this is the very last verse, all who believe receive forgiveness of sins um, through his name. So, so let me, let me say this. Obviously, there's, there's some contrast to maybe how we've heard it presented, uh, maybe how we've heard it um, said, maybe how we've said it ourselves. Um, the things that we emphasize, the things we choose to emphasize versus the things they chose to emphasize. Let me say this. Um, I don't think these sermons are meant to be prescriptive. In other words, this is how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to use these words and use it this way and say it this way to everyone at all times, every, everywhere. That's not the point. Um, I think Luke is describing, he's just writing down what happened. He's just giving an account to what took place. What is, in, what is important for us to recognize is the gospel that is often proclaimed this is the question we need to ask ourselves. When we, when we want to talk about the gospel, why do we want to emphasize the things we emphasize? Um, is this how Jesus talked about the gospel? Is this, how, is this how his followers talked about the gospel? I think those are, those are valuable questions for us to be asking and, and seeking. And Acts gives us a very, very, very important understanding of how it was first, when it first birthed and launched how the gospel was communicated and talked about and, and what they highlighted and what they talked about and how they connected Jesus to Abraham and, and the promises of God to the people of Israel and the story of Israel and how Jesus is a fulfillment of all that. How He's King and He's Lord and He's, and he's Judge and, and, and we're called to repent and turn to Him um, are, are things that they seem to be highlighting and talking about. Um, and, and so... This past week in um, in Colorado, I had I had an opportunity. I had some grad students, and um, this is how I know that 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 maybe maybe we've emphasized certain things more than we should. Is because when I've asked when I asked a group of of students who just graduated from high school who are going into college. Um, What's God care about most? The number one answer was us. God cares about us the most. Which we would all go, yeah, for God so loved the world. That's true. Um, he loved us and He loves us. And, but it is. It's, it's in all of our songs. It's in all of our communications. It's, it's, our, it's our method of persuasion, if you think of it in that way. God loves you. Oh, well, if God loves me, then, then now I'll listen to what you have to say. Um, it's, it's just interesting. So I'm, I'm talking through this. We're walking through this. this okay, so let's John 3.16. So God loved us so much. What did He want to give us? Well, He gave us Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? He's God. So God loved us so much He wanted to give us Himself. And 
And as we began to talk about this, um, some of the students were finally going, oh. And, and, and as we talked about the story of, of Israel and God's faithfulness to His promises and God calling them back to repentance, to His covenant, and God sending Jesus as the fulfillment of all of that, and, and by placing our faith and trust in Him, we actually get to inherit this incredible heritage of God's faithfulness and, and salvation and, and uh, righteousness and restoration. And, and they, they began to see that really, if God made us to bring glory to Him, then maybe He cares about His own glory more than He cares about us individually. And that by caring about God's glory, He's actually caring about us better than, than just focusing all of it on us. And so it was, it was fun to sit in the mountains and say, so all these trees and all these, this beautiful scenery, um, did God create that just so, uh, so we can enjoy, or did God create all of this so that we could bring glory to Him? And, and for some of them, it was, they were, one, one of the students was mad and wanted to get up and walk away because... He didn't like this egocentrical God. But, but as, I, as we begin to talk about, well, God cares about the most important thing. What's that? <laughs> it would be Him. So, is our gospel message and presentation, is it oftentimes us-centered? God loves us. We get to go to heaven. We are saved. We, and how is the gospel um, bringing glory to Jesus, and when it's proclaimed, it seems to be seems to be the case. So, just some things to think about. Um, we're going to take a break. Ryan's going to get up, and I'm going to leave. I'm getting ready to drive about five and a half hours north as soon as I get home. So, um, several things. My grandma's in the hospital. Got some things going on there. I'm gonna go see her. That leads me into what we were going to talk about tonight, which is the mission of the church. Um, you are, one of the things that I have found, I, I love, uh, I, I have a number of types of literature that I really enjoy. I mean, I, I, I love to read. I hope that, um, I don't belabor this point because I talk about it a lot, but I do love to read. I have a number of genres that I love. I love Latin American literature. I love, um, so- Southern American literature, uh, and I mean, like, like the south of the United States. I love Faulkner. I, I, I just love all of I, My favorite author, I've told you this, is Mark Twain. I just can't get enough of him. And you can always tell um, a lot about somebody and what they care about and what they'll fight for by their letters they write to people. So I, I have a book of Mark Twain's correspondence to various people. And uh, perhaps my affinity for him would explain a lot of the sarcasm here. Um, I have books of C.S. Lewis. He writes a lot of letters to a number of people. And you, you can just, by reading people's mail, you begin to get more insight into who they are and how they think and what they care about. And that is most of our New Testament, is us opening up somebody else's mailbox and eavesdropping on private conversations. Conversations that, in most cases, were meant to be read aloud before a group, but are, when I say private, they are, in, they are um, written for the purpose of a specific someone or group of someones in a specific context. 
and, and, and Paul's letters primarily, but we have some from Peter and from Jude and from James and John. These letters tell us a whole lot about what they value. And if these men were the first leaders, if these men were the men that Jesus entrusted His church with, these are the guys who are establishing the mission of the church by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Well, what that Holy Spirit chooses to ordain that they would write, well, that, that can be really helpful for us to understand the mission of the church. And so all of this, uh, like Scott mentioned, much of what we have in the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, but there are others, we can put it in the framework of Paul's three missionary journeys. Actually, I think he had four. We, just, we have a record of three in the book of Acts. But um, I, I think that there was a fourth missionary journey, and we'll talk about that here in a second. I, I believe Paul eventually got to Spain. But we can see if, as he takes these journeys, not only is, uh, is Jesus' charge to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, not only do we see that realized in the three uh, missionary journeys, but we see the church very much uh, being established. And here's why the New Testament epistles give us a lot of hope. If I were to ask you, when was kind of the golden age of the church? Those of you that go to Sunnybrook, the Sunnybrook, uh, in turn, we're, we're a non-denominational church, we're an independent church, but in terms of our denominational undergirding and background, we, we come from a system that says what we want is to go back to, a, we want to do church today as much like they did it in the New Testament as possible. That is the gist of what's known as the Restoration Movement from which you get the Church of Christ, the Christian Church, and the independent Christian churches. You have this movement that says, as far as we're concerned, we want to do it as much like they did in the first church as possible. And I say, that sounds great. And then we talk about, well, when was the best time to be alive in the church? When was the church at its purest? When did it best know and understand its mission? Well, of course, it was when it started. But as we read through these letters and we see these leaders and these church planners and these missionaries writing to these churches, writing to these people all over the Mediterranean world, we realize, wow, they dealt with the same garbage we deal with today. Even worse. I, to date, have not met anybody who is struggling with the desire to sleep with their stepmom. Yet that's a problem that's dealt with in the books, to, in the letters to the Corinthian church. Like, Corinth was kind of a skanky church, if you want. Like, it was, it was Las Vegas of the ancient world. Corinth was not a good... And, and yet Paul plants a church there and deals with very real issues of immorality and, and sexual perversion and, and this... Lots of problems. So we read these letters and we say, wow, I think I can really see the mission of the church playing out and I can see God being faithful in and amongst all the problems. So let's look at let's look at these these missionary journeys and see how we can understand a bit better the um, the mission of the church. Uh, Paul or, or Scott mentioned four sermons from Peter and then um, Stephen's sermon. If you want to read a great quintessential Pauline sermon, that would be Acts thirteen. Here's what here's Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and um, Barnabas are originally they are. Uh, well, well, Paul is kind of here, and then he's going to Damascus before he has his conversion. Now, Paul and Barnabas are hanging out here at Antioch. Antioch becomes something of a missionary um, headquarters for the first church. It really is a place that's got a great port. It's got um, a lot of connections to both, I would say, the 
the Jewish world proper, and then the Jewish world in terms of the dispersion, the, the, uh, the, the mainland of Asia Minor. This is Asia Minor, by the way. If you know where modern-day Turkey is, that's this. So Antioch is a very strategic place. Paul and Barnabas settle out. The Holy Spirit calls them to go on a missionary journey. They sail from Antioch to a little place on the end of Cyprus called Salamis. Um, Cyprus is near and dear to my heart. My stepmom is from Cyprus, so I've spent a lot of time on this island visiting her family. And it is, I've never been to Jerusalem. I, I will, I've got to get there before I'm dead. I really, really want to hang out in Jerusalem. But I have been in, to both Salamis and then to the other place on the other side of the island, a city named Paphos, where I believe I've been in the amphitheaters that Paul was preaching at. I believe I've stood at the stone lectern that it's likely the Apostle Paul gave gospel presentations from, and it is the creepiest feeling, and it is so cool that I can talk like this at this volume, and a 10,000-seat amphitheater, everybody can hear. It's pretty really, like, I love going to the top and having my little brother down there talking. It's just so creepy. If you ever get a chance to go to this part of the world, go. Um, now, Paul comes here. It's on this island that his name is changed from, well, Saul to Paul. And from Cyprus, they sail up to the mainland here, and then they go up into a city that would have been about right here called Pisidian Antioch. And that's where you have that great sermon in Acts 13 that traces the gospel from Abraham down through Jesus. This is where Paul, through a little series of churches here, plants the churches that he would have written a letter not too long after that called the book of Galatians 2. So he plants these churches and then makes his way back to Antioch. Does anybody know, uh, can anyone recall the, the, the first church council? What's it called? The Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. This is the first um, ecumenical council, church-wide council, where everybody comes together and they say, we've got some issues we've got to decide. Um, can you be Jewish, or can you be non-Jewish and be a Christian, is the question on the table. And that's the issue that Galatians is dealing with. Now, Paul, we see, is evangelizing in an area that has Jewish people, sure, but is predominantly Gentile. These would have been, um, this would have been a relatively Roman-ruled area. And, that, and in Acts 15, this would have been A.D. 50, 49-50, we'll call it 50. They have the Jerusalem Council. And they say, can you be a Gentile and not become ceremonially Jewish? Can you be a Gentile and not deal with issues of dietary laws, circumcision, um, um, maintaining the festivals and the holy days? Can you be a Gentile, ignore all of that, and have Jesus alone and be a part of the church? That's the question they're asking in Acts 15. Basically, can the rest of the world be a part of this church and not become Jewish? And, and the decision is, yes. Paul gives a brilliant explanation. Let me tell you what I've seen. Let me tell you how the gospel is going out. And the, the, the leaders in Jerusalem say, we can't stop this. This is obviously the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot get in the way of this and place an, un, uh, uh, an unreasonable burden or yoke on the Gentile people. And so they send letters out saying, no, Gentiles can come in. They don't have to become Jewish to do this. And Paul writes a letter to the churches in Galatia. We have it as the book of Galatians. Where he basically says, don't you dare 
add anything to Jesus. It is Jesus alone. And this is, you know, Romans is our great justification by faith book. Galatians is the book that predicated what Roman, like it's, it established the foundation for what Romans would later say as Paul writes that, that book later on. So I believe that, that Paul, um, and, and I never would have been able to put a fine timeline on it, but of course Drew Moss has done some weird research on it. I believe that Paul plants these churches as back in Antioch. Here, the Jerusalem Council is called. Everyone is summoned to come speak at this. And on his way down, Drew contends, and, and actually very in a compelling way, Drew contends that on his way from Antioch to Jerusalem, he writes the letter of Galatians and sends it off. And says, I'm going, like, the letter to the Galatians actually goes out before the Jerusalem Council makes this decision. But it's a fascinating book, and it is a book that discusses issues. We're not going to be able to go through all the books, but I do want to tell you the highlights of each one. It discusses issues of living life in Christ, being free in the gospel, and, of course, the famous passage on the fruits of the Spirit. That's the book of Galatians. Now, um, about a year later, Paul set sail on his second missionary journey. He and Barnabas have parted ways over an issue uh, um, at this point, and Paul is now with a man named Silas. And he leaves on a journey, first revisiting these churches in Galatia. Paul, you'll see in him, he, for however stern he can be, and for however much of like a, a, a high leader Paul can be, he's extremely pastoral. He's always checking up on his churches. He's always caring for those he's left in charge. He's always ministering to people, encouraging people, rebuking them when necessary. But he, he, you see him set out on these journeys, and before he goes and plants new churches, he wants to check on those that he's already established. Paul is very, very pastoral. But in Acts 15, they set out on their second missionary journey. He comes in through here. In Lystra, they pick up a young man that's going to be very important to Paul's ministry named Timothy. Um, and then uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy went through Phrygia and Galatia and into Troas. Now, here's what they're doing. This, to me, if you ever think about like alternative endings to history, this blows my mind. Paul is here, going here, going to go here is his plan. Paul, I think, based on what we're told in Acts, wanted to take the gospel east. Wanted the gospel to go, I think, to China. I think he wanted to go east. And there was um, a small matter of dealing with the Holy Spirit, who said, no, you're going to go west. It gives Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come share the gospel over here, in effect. Known as the Macedonian Call in Acts 16. And instead, Paul goes this way and plants churches all through Macedonia, Greece, Crete. Now, I just love to think, what would have happened if the Spirit had let Paul go east? If possibly the most prolific and renowned missionary to have ever lived went east to eastern thinking people and did not go west to the universal language. The United States might very well be the frontier evangelism of today if the Holy Spirit hadn't sent Paul west instead of east. Now, don't don't hear me that the the gospel was ignored in China forever. The, the, The apostles even got the gospel that direction. 
But I'm just saying, it wasn't Paul. It wasn't the Holy Spirit working as much as he was through Paul. And, and I actually think that there are a number of reasons. Roman road system, God in his providence knew what he was doing. The universal language of Greek, God in his providence knew what he was doing. The, even when you read, you read the epistles, the, the structure of the epistles, the reason and the rationale that they use, that's not an Eastern way of writing or thinking. That's very Western. That's a very, very Greek way of thinking. God, I believe, used all of this in His providence to, to achieve what He desired in terms of establishing His church and, and taking it throughout the ends of the earth. But nevertheless, I love to think, what could have happened if Paul had gone east instead of west? Interesting to me. He goes into Macedonia. He plants churches here in, in um, Philippi, in Thessalonica, um, in Athens, and in Corinth. He, um, from Corinth, he goes back to Ephesus, and then from Ephesus, he takes a ship to Caesarea, and then to, um, back to Antioch. So, if I were to kind of swirl it, it would be, that's the second missionary journey, in effect. During this time, he is writing a couple of other letters, first and second Thessalonians. Some of the earliest letters written. Um, I think the, the earliest letters written of the four are James, which we'll talk about here in a bit, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians. The church in Thessalonica, Paul plants and is literally run out of town by some angry Jews from, out of, from another town nearby. He is, um, he is run out of town, and, and here's what happens. He planted a church and didn't have time to help them achieve some level of maturity. And so they're wrestling with issues. They're like, hey, you converted us and our family, but our family's dying off and Jesus hasn't come back. What's going to happen? And so Paul writes the letter. The letters to the, Thessalonica, the, the church in Thessalonica are very encouraging. They're very filled with hope. They're saying, hey, like those who have died in Christ, those who are dead in Jesus, they'll rise first when He comes back. They are gonna, he is, God is going to resurrect them and they're going to come back with Jesus. They're incredible letters of hope. He also gives them details about his travel plans. He reminds them to stand firm when persecuted, gives them instructions on the day of the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, by the way, if you are a fan of checking out the rapture text. I just want to make one comment. Yes. When you make a mark like that on their Yes. Yes. These are these missionary journeys. So we look at this and we're like, oh yeah, a couple, uh, yeah, a small airplane. If I'm in, if I'm really, you know, hard up for money, a little turboprop take me a while. This is a multiple year journey. Walking. I mean, a good day, 25, 30 miles. And this is, this takes a while. You got to book ships, not cheap to, 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 to hop onto ships and to sail. Okay, so like a jump like this from, say, Corinth to Ephesus is, saves a lot of time to sail, but that's an expensive thing for a tent maker. And so this is like, this is a long, drawn out process. And yeah, it's good to remember these are, year-long, years, multiple years-long missionary journeys in most cases. The, the book of Second Thessalonians deals with um, faithfulness, um, Christian behavior, and, and there's the famous passage about the man of lawlessness. 
um, which is it is an interesting um, apocalyptic figure. It is not the same as the Antichrist that First John mentions. Um, primarily because the man of lawlessness is a singular figure. Antichrist is a generic term for anyone who would deny that Christ came physically in the flesh. So there are pastors in this town that are, by definition, antichrists. The antichrist is not some figure at the end of time. It's, it's a label for a heretic of a particular kind. Um, but you have that, you have the, the, the word um, for rapture, that is its only, the only time it's used um, in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 4. It's in, most, in most Bibles it's rendered as taken up. So the dead will rise with Christ and come here, and those who are left alive on earth will be taken up to meet Christ in the air. That's where we get the word the rapture. So some great stuff in those early letters to the churches in Thessalonica. His third missionary journey, which would have gone from 53 A.D. to 57, Roughly, three and a half years. So Paul is in Antioch for about another year before he sets out on this third missionary journey. Again, checks on the churches in Galatia and Phrygia. This begins in Acts 18. He returns to Ephesus where his work caused a riot. Um, When you bring the gospel to a place that has a lot of trade predicated on idolatry and people that make their money... um, Uh, Wow, I just realized, like I just had a profound thought about Planned Parenthood. But when you take the gospel and it starts to affect economic engines, people hate that gospel even more than they already would. Never mind you talking about my sin. You're starting to mess with my lifestyle. Well, that caused a little bit of a riot in Ephesus. What? It doesn't sound like an area, a place we know about at all. No, no. So... Starts a riot, then he goes and revisits his churches in Macedonia and Greece, and then um, sails to Caesarea, and then back to Jerusalem, taking with him um, and, um, some much-needed funds for those who are suffering. Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem has some hard times. They were under severe persecution, and Jerusalem was not a popular or advantageous place to be a Christian in the early church. Um, and, and not to mention famines. Now, this is where you get probably three of Paul's most important books on this particular journey, First and Second Corinthians and the book of Romans. These are three very, very important letters. He writes First Corinthians while he was staying at the home of Aquila and Priscilla, who would have been Roman Christians staying in Ephesus. That's where Paul writes this particular letter from, writes it to the church in Corinth. Titus carried it over there, and then, This, again, is a a scandalous church. And Paul relates the Christian faith to everyday life in these beautiful churches, in this beautiful letter. So, in 1 Corinthians, some issues that are discussed. Immorality, sex, and marriage. The Lord's Supper is detailed. If you go check out 1 Corinthians 11, that's a great section on the Lord's Supper. Um, The gifts of the Holy Spirit. God's love, that would be 1 Corinthians 13, instructions for worship. And let me just pause to insert a little bit of a note about reading that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 about love is patient, love is kind. That, by design, falls in between sections about how the gifts of the Spirit are to be used and how worship is to be orderly and reasonable. That, that love is kind of the found, that, that godly love is the foundation for gifts being used properly and orderly. And then, of course, my favorite chapter in the whole New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, probably a a, um, 
you see in its little pieces. If you could analyze the language, I'm sure um, John could do better than any of us, but if you analyze the original language, you see that all of a sudden Paul's... Um, his style shifts in small sections of 1 Corinthians 15, which leads most scholars to believe that he's reciting an ancient creed. 1 Corinthians 15 likely has some of the earliest Christian creeds in it regarding the resurrection of Jesus. These are things that churches, uh, you could call it like a catechism of some sort. This is how you teach people how to rightly understand and remember important things about our faith. You'll find those things in 1 Corinthians 15. Some of the most profound stuff we have regarding the resurrection, its truthfulness, and its significance. If I were to ever say, there's one chapter in the New Testament I think you ought to memorize, I think it would be that one. 1 Corinthians 15. 2 Corinthians um, was written sometime later. Now, it's also worth remembering, it's likely, based on how Paul describes these letters, that our books of 1 and 2 Corinthians are technically uh, second and fourth Corinthians. There are two letters that we don't seem to have. And uh, you know, a guy that likes alternative ideas of history. If we found one of those books to one of those letters to the Corinthian churches, would we want it in our Bible? There's also probably a lost letter to the Laodiceans. It's like if we found that, would you want it in your Bible? You know, I trust that God knew what He was doing whenever He let those ones fly, along with Paul's you know shopping lists, but. It's like, if I could get those letters, I would just love to have them. Um, so, these are, look, Paul had a long, contentious, complicated relationship with the church in Corinth. Um, the second, book of 2 Corinthians deals with travel plans, the new covenant. Um, it has a great section on sanctification. He tells about his future travels, and he's collecting an offering for the church in Judea. And then, of course, he defends himself against the criticism of those who would come in to try to dismantle his ministry. The books of First and Second Corinthians are, by and large, not long arguments like the book of Romans, but they are answers to individual questions and complaints and concerns. So it's like Paul deals with this question, then this question, then this question. He also, in this time, writes the book of Romans, which for so many people is their favorite book in the New Testament. And it certainly um, merits that kind of attention. It was written from Corinth. Paul did not plant the church in Rome. You go back to Pentecost, um, it's like, uh, there are Roman Christians in the audience. It's likely that they took the gospel back to Rome and the church was established like that. Paul eventually gets to Rome, as does Peter, um, Peter is primarily the leader of the church in Rome. By the time he gets there, Paul is more of a prisoner most of the time he's in Rome. Um, he enjoys quite a bit of favor the first time he's a prisoner there, house arrest. Second time, he's on death row, gets his head cut off. But he writes this letter to the Romans from Corinth. Um, and the, again, this church was planted relatively early on. Now, this is a complicated church. Rome, the church in Rome is complicated because when it's first established, it is mixed Jew and Gentile. Now, there's still issues of racism in the early church. I get that. But it's, it's still mixed Jew and Gentile. Now, here's the problem. Roman emperors found the Jewish people perfect whipping boys for their problems. And whenever I need to, even if it is the Jews' fault or it isn't, they're an easy target to blame. And... The Jewish uh, Christians are run out of town. And the Roman church, while being a Jew, Jew, uh, Jew and Gentile church, all of a sudden becomes a Gentile-only church. 
the Jews eventually are allowed back into the city. Now you have to kind of resettle this church, and it gets a little complicated. And I think that that's in large part why we have some of these really complicated chapters at the end of Romans um, 9, 10, and 11, that Paul is dealing with issues of two people that, don't, that are having trouble understanding one another. It doesn't make those easy to read. doesn't even make them easy to interpret. However, I think that the historical situation is that we're, we have a church that was ripped in half and it is now trying to reconcile and deal with some certain issues. Now, Paul intended to get to Rome. Rome was never the goal. Rome was going to be his launching point to get to Spain. Paul wanted to take the gospel to Spain. In the book of Romans, we have issues discussed, such as human depravity, justification by faith, God's covenantal promise, baptism, new life in the Holy Spirit, persecution by the Jews, Paul's mission, transformed life. You have Romans is one of the richest books in the New Testament. But it isn't what I would consider a systematic theology, like the New Testament version of a systematic theology. I've heard that a number of times. As if the Romans is Paul's perfection of all of his beliefs and doctrine. I just, I mean, I just think he deals with justification better in Galatians. I think he deals with doctrine of the church better in Ephesians. I think he deals with the resurrection better in 1 Corinthians. So it's not the culmination of Paul's theology, although it is rich. And probably the reason that people want to say it's a systematic theology is because it is so methodically laid out. It is a very logical letter. This, thus this, thus this, here's my conclusion. Romans 12.1, therefore, be transformed. Like I think that's what the whole letter is moving to, Romans 12.1. Incredible letter, um, obviously one we should all spend a great deal of time studying. After the third missionary journey, Paul makes it back to Jerusalem, and he doesn't make any friends. <laughs> he has a meeting with James and the elders, and then there's some trouble stirred up by some Jews who slander Paul, in effect, saying he took a Gentile past the court of Gentiles in the temple, which is a capital crime, or it's a serious crime in, um, in Jerusalem, that he, that he took a non-Jew too far into the temple complex. It's unlikely true. Paul says it's not true. And so, but nevertheless, he is persecuted and arrested. And now his life is going to be one of hopping from jail cell to jail cell. So he is arrested in Jerusalem. He is shipped from here to Caesarea by the sea, which would have been kind of the Roman playland. This is where they would go. For all the Romans that were stationed here, this was kind of their beach resort. Let's take Paul there because Jerusalem's too dangerous. He's imprisoned there before Felix. The next governor comes to power, Festus, and he and Paul is, of course, waiting to be heard, waiting to be tried, and when Festus comes to power, Paul appeals to Caesar. If you guys won't listen to me, if I can't get a fair trial, I'm going to get to Caesar, and that is a, that is a nice way to get to Rome. On, the, on, on Rome's dime. Expensive to sail all the way to Italy. I'll appeal to Caesar and make them deal with it. So they'll take me as a prisoner. Um, he sails for Rome under escort. They have the shipwreck. Um, you can see that there were all sorts of complications about where they should have wintered here on Crete. They didn't get it right. They were pushed out to sea. They wreck. They land on the island of Malta. Paul is healing people that have snake bites. And then all this stuff eventually gets to Rome. And um, in effect, that's where the book of Acts ends. Paul strolling into Rome. He gets to Rome, and he is awaiting trial before Nero. He's under house arrest, and he writes, we know this because he wrote 
um, a number of important letters. We call them the prison epistles. First, we have the book of Ephesians. We've got to move because I don't want to just spend my time with Paul. I want to talk about some other guys too. We have the book of Ephesians, which is a church that Paul nurtured for three years. And he writes this beautiful... Uh, most, most people consider Ephesians some of the most beautiful language in the New Testament. You could throw Hebrews in there. But Paul's most beautiful letter is the book of Ephesians. It deals with God's cosmic plan, our new life in Christ, unity in the body, that is the church, and then it has that famous passage on the armor of God. The book of Ephesians is, a, is three chapters of this is who Christ is and this is what He's done, and, and three chapters at the end of therefore this is how we should live. That's the book of Ephesians. He writes that while he's on trial, or while he's waiting trial before Nero. He also wrote the book of Colossians, four chapters, um, a church that Paul likely never visited, but fell within the territory that he felt responsible for. And so he writes the letter to the church in Colossae, dealing with issues of false teachings, angel worship, asceticism, like living uh, like a pauper for spiritual reasons, um, the divinity of Christ, the atonement, and then he gives some practical advice. Colossians, for being only four chapters, is a dense book that deals with some heavy-hitting topics. Colossians is a great... Um, it, it's one of those books where I want to sit down and read a whole book real quick. I love to go to the book of Colossians. It just ministers to me on so many levels. It's beautiful. He writes the letter to a man named Philemon. Um, Philemon has a, um, has a, a runaway slave whose name is Onesimus. And Paul wants Onesimus to return to his master. And Paul writes a letter ahead to his master saying, Don't hold any offense on his part. Take, take, credit it to my account. You have some of this really interesting exchange language that is very, very important, I think, in understanding the sacrificial nature of the New Testament. But he says, Consider him now a Christian brother. And, and it's just, it's a really, really um, interesting letter that describes issues of Christian brotherhood, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And then, of course, he writes another favorite of many people, the letter to the church in Philippi. He describes issues of life in Christ, warnings against the Jewish law, and, of course, Christian joy. And the great passage on the humility of Christ, that he emptied himself, is in that um, particular letter. So you have those are the four prison epistles. Then Paul gets out, and this is where I think we have his fourth missionary journey that we don't have much information on, but we can read the pastoral epistles, which would have been written while he was out. You have in um, from 62 to about 66, 67, Paul is something of a free man, and I believe this is the point in his ministry where he likely, I hope, seems like Paul was a determined guy to get to where he intended to go. It seems like in this particular time period is when he would have made it to Spain, got the gospel that far. He writes a letter to um, one of his right-hand men, uh, Timothy. He writes the letter of 1 Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy is, is an, a letter that encourages a young pastor, church planter, elder, uh, on, on how to do well. So Paul sends this man out with his full authority and gives Timothy instructions for worship, instructions for how to appoint elders, and instruction and encouragement for holding on to the truth in spite of those who would detract from it. He also writes a letter to a man named Titus. Titus had established the church on the island of Crete. Similar letter to 1 Timothy. Paul asking him to select church members well 
telling him certain things about his teaching methods and about Christian behavior. And then Paul's last letter that we have is the letter of 2 Timothy. Beautiful letter, which is the, the, the words of a man who knows he's about to die. And he just, he just tells Timothy, it's worth it. Like, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to lead well. And he talks about the last days. He talks about his final instructions to this church planner. And then in 67 AD, or thereabouts, Paul is executed in Rome. Like a, like a good Roman citizen, had his head cut off. Um, other New Testament letters, and we're going to go through these at a break next week, so I don't want to hold you guys to, uh, I don't want to hold you late. Um, 66, somewhere between, in the late 60s, you have a, the letter to the, uh, to the Hebrews written. This is an anonymous letter. We don't know who wrote it. Church tradition says Paul. I think that um, it, doesn't, it just doesn't sound Pauline to me. Um, and, I, and I don't want to make too much of that. So it could, like, I, I very much concede that a guy could have changed his style as his life goes on. But it's other options that are viable and probably to me hold as much weight as Paul would be um, Barnabas or Apollos. Um, may have also written this particular letter. But it deals with the futility of returning to Judaism, the supremacy of Jesus as God's perfect revelation of Himself, and Jesus as the greater deliverer, the greater Moses, and Jesus as the perfect high priest. You have uh, The book of Hebrews is a, an incredible one. Um, like I said, early on you had the book of James written, which is something of a, like a New Testament book of Proverbs. Um, that's that's not how it's sometimes characterized, but it's a very practical book about daily wisdom and what it looks like to live every day as a follower of Jesus. And it was um, one of the earliest pieces of Christian literature that we actually have our, hold, our hands on. This would have been written to um, the church in Jerusalem, likely. Um, the letter of uh, the, the epistle um, from Jude deals... It was written 65 A.D. deals with false teachings which led to immorality. First and Second Peter would have both been written shortly before Peter's death in Rome. Um, he wrote this. He wrote these letters to churches in this area. That's who Peter was writing to: to persecuted Christians who are not losing their lives but are falling out of favor with society. Sound familiar? People who are losing. Um, their privilege, losing their, their place in their trade guilds. He's writing to them these letters of, this is how you stand firm, this is how you endure persecution, this is how you remain faithful, and this is how you hope for Jesus' return. This is how you spot false teachings, which lead to immorality. And you have the letters um, from John the Apostle, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is dealing with heresy at a philosophical level, dealing with Gnosticism in a different way, a, a way of thinking that like, um, degrades the value of the body, and it just looks at things from a spiritual level. And there's the secret knowledge. And John, the, 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 the writer of these letters, he deals with that issue. John is likely the, uh, I, I believe, he's the last, um, the last apostle alive and he is ministering in churches in this area he was exiled to this island Patmos after they tried to kill him but couldn't and um, and he writes these letters again first John is where you have the issue of the Antichrist raised he also wrote the revelation yeah he also wrote the revelation in 96 AD the last thing of our New Testament which was written um, this is, this is a letter for, obviously, all of church history, but it had, it had very real first century 
um, recipients, which would have been these churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, Western Turkey, if you want to talk about a modern-day map. So he writes, and he gives warnings and encouragement to these seven churches. Jesus does through John. And then he describes the end of the world. He says, you know why we can hope in Jesus? Because of Revelation 4 and 5. Because he's magnificent on the throne. Because he is the lamb who was slain. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to be just. And he's going to bring salvation and judgment. And so he, he describes the end of the world three times. This is not three different events that take place. I believe he describes the end of the world three times as God pours out His judgment through the seven scrolls. The end of the world. And He goes back and He pours out His judgment through the seven trumpets. The end of the world. And then He goes back and He says, let me tell you that story again. pours out His judgment through the seven bowls. And then the beast and the prostitute and Babylon are destroyed. And it's fast. I think it's Revelation 18:19. If you look at how... This is, how, this is what gives me chills about how powerful God is. God doesn't need to destroy evil. He lets evil cave in on itself. If you go read how evil finally dies, it eats itself to pieces. It spirals in and just finally destroys itself. And God is in control over all things. And, God, and the book of Revelation basically says... Anything that isn't named Yahweh is a farce. And anything that would steal glory from the only one who should be worshipped, it's that God from Revelation 4 and 5, is going to eventually be utterly destroyed by this powerful, powerful figure riding a white horse. And then Revelation 21 and 22, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. And we know how the story ends. And that's, that's the last letter written to um, the early churches. And so you can see through all of these, this incredible emphasis on hope and refinement and obedience and faithfulness and endurance. And, and that begins to paint a picture of what the mission of the church is. Follow Jesus, be faithful, endure, maintain your hope. And Revelation 22 proves that God wins in the end. So that is... It's very, very helpful, I think, to read the book of Acts, or read, read your, uh, your epistles, particularly Paul's epistles, with the book of Acts open next to it. And I think that it's helpful to read the book of Acts with a map next to it, which is in the back of most of your Bibles. So, it's all there for you. Just don't, don't separate them. This is all one big hairball of things that are interconnected. Everything from eh, Genesis to Revelation. So, let me pray, and... I'm only three minutes over. So. Father, you are, you are good and you are reliable. The word that the, our scriptures use is faithful. You're faithful to, to yourself and you're faithful to what you've said you will do. And you've called us to be your image bearers and you've called us to be active, holy members of your kingdom. Teach us to understand that kingdom better. Teach us to work as instruments of the Holy Spirit by His power and for your glory. And show us more and more all the time how the New Testament stories are just our stories. And how the church you've established is the church that we're a part of.
and that you are faithful to providentially care for all things until you come back and restore everything. And for that we are grateful, and in that we hope. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So next week, Drew Moss is going to give a full-blown gospel presentation that goes a lot further than Jesus died for my sins. So, it should be good. I might come on Wednesday to see if he gets it right.